0: Shalom, I'm Rabbi Scott. Welcome to the ministry of Beth Yeshua Messianic Synagogue in Fort Myers, Florida. We hope and pray that this teaching will be a blessing to you. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to our website, www.bethyeshuafla.com to donate online, or we can accept your donation over text. Please text the word GIVE to the number 239 747 seven five two six thank you for your support blessings and shalom Shabbat Shalom Shabbat Shalom so um, we're continuing our series on male and female husband and wife we're hopefully finishing up this week Um, not that I've run out of things to say but um, like I've talked about this is a lifelong adventure Amen Um, your marriage will affect every part of your life so it is in your best interest to work on it in your best interest to have a good one to make it good so that your life will be better you've all heard my quote by now right if things are good with my wife nothing matters nothing else matters and if things are not good with my wife nothing else matters so uh, yeah Ephesians five twenty six says this in the same way husbands ought to love their own wives as their own lot as their own bodies it says this he who loves his wife loves himself he who loves his wife loves himself and that's what this means that to, to love your your wife is to love yourself the husband and wife are one they are echad and that to love your spouse is to bless your spouse and yourself and the marriage think of it in terms of there's three entities There's you and your spouse, and then there's the marriage, which is the echadness, the oneness, the togetherness. It is almost like there is a third partner in this sort of thing. You have to be good, the other person has to be good, the marriage has to be good. And we work on that, uh, learning to love ourselves, learning to know ourselves, and, and getting to know your spouse, and getting to know yourself, and getting to know about marriage. So there are three learning fields, three arcs of learning that you do here. You learn about your spouse, you learn about the practice and the method of marriage, and you learn about yourself, how you are going to do this, what you're bringing to the table. We began this concept with this idea, um, this comes from the ultra-Orthodox communities, Hasidic communities, etc. It's called Shalom Bayit. It's the peace of the home. And the sages teach us that the shalom bayit, the peace of the home, is almost exclusively and entirely the responsibility of the husband of man. The man who is the husband, the husband man. It is his responsibility. He is meant to be the giver, the sacrifice, the leader, and the wife, woman, is meant to be the receiver. Now, if you are unmarried, if you are single, for any reason whatsoever, by a failed marriage, by widowhood, if you are single by virtue of your age, perhaps you're too young, or uh, perhaps marriage just has never been offered to you. It's never been in your experience. It's never been offered to you. For some people, they wish to be married, but they're not for any number of reasons. If you are single for, every, for any reason, everything we're speaking about here is evident in your relationship with Adonai by virtue of Adonai being the husband, by virtue of Yeshua being the bridegroom. And this, is, this is what it means to be single, is, is to be undistracted from that fundamental, essential relationship. You see, when, 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 when you have a husband and a wife who are married, I talked about the three entities, the husband, the wife, and the marriage, Those three entities, and then Adonai is woven in and through that, and so you really have this committee it's as if your, your married life is, is the product of a committee. When you're a single person, you don't have any of that. When you're a single person, you don't have that committee. You just have you and Adonai. In the same way that a single, that, sorry, in the same way that a married person, husband, wife, a, a husband could be indifferent and could ignore the spouse, the wife. Likewise, a wife could be indifferent, she could ignore the the spouse, the husband. In the same way a single person can ignore Adonai. And, And at the same peril. The single person is called upon to enter into that relationship with Adonai in an undistracted sort of way, in an undiluted sort of way. It should be their focus, it should be their primary relationship in all of life. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Your maker is your husband. Adonai fo'ot is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He will be called the God of earth. It is this line. The Lord your maker, Adonai fo'ot is his name. Your maker is your husband. If you're watching with us online, we seem to have broken something this morning. And you probably, I say probably, do not have verses on your screen. Uh, for that, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll try to get that rectified this week. But as of now, we don't have, uh, for you technical people in the booth, the DSK is not going to work with the verses. I think it works with the songs and the liturgy, but it doesn't seem to work with the Bible verses this morning. All right, so I'm sorry about that. Um, but, but moving on, it is this idea that, that, that Adonai is your maker. He is your husband. Uh, Revelation 19 uh, speaks of this. The wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 9. Uh, says this come I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb and so all of us are in this relationship with Adonai but if you're single it is a very selective relationship it's a very exclusive relationship Isaiah 62 5 says this as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride so your God will rejoice over you As a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And this for a single woman, as you can imagine, is an undistracted experience. In other words, a married woman has a relationship with her spouse and a relationship with God. And so you have these multiple vectors. Life naturally becomes complex, it just is. But for a single woman, that is very specific. Likewise for a single man, Adonai as a husband, Adonai as a bridegroom. We understand that uh, it's easier for perhaps a woman to get her hands around this idea of, of Adonai as a husband, as Yeshua as a bridegroom, but it's equally appropriate to the men as well, the single men. Adonai is your maker, uh, he is your husband, Yeshua as a bridegroom. Now, The last thing I want to mention to this, for those of you who are single women, of which there's probably predominantly in our community, do you know that you are the example to the married women around you? You are the example because you have this undistracted vector in your relationship with Adonai, such that that is your primary relationship. And that now becomes an example to the rest of us who live this complex life by committee that I described. In other words, yeah, we we all live these lives by committee. And and we have these multiple people involved in our lives. So you've got the husband, the wife, and the the marriage. And then you've got Adonai woven in and through that. And it, it becomes a little bit complicated sometimes. That's normal. That's just real life. But we should all strive to enter into that relationship with Adonai that resembles the relationship that a single woman has, where she doesn't have any distractions. Do you see that? We emulate them in their relationship with Adonai. We emulate that exclusivity. We emulate that dependence. We emulate that sort of single-mindedness. So this is why I say, those of you who are single, do you see this? You are in an exclusive relationship with Adonai, with all of your romance, all of your dependence, all of your security on him as a byproduct of faith. All of your intimacy with Adonai as a byproduct of hope. You are an example to the married women who must also live with the same amount of hope and faith with their flawed spouses, right? Because that's the reality. Let's just be honest. We're all flawed. None of us are perfect. The only one who's perfect in this complicated mess is Adam and I. And so you, who are single, who are not married, both men and women, your spouse is perfect. You see that? And so you have a motivation. And an exclusive relationship with that. You get to enter into that, and you get to become an example to us in how to do that. It becomes a motivational thing. Let me say it this way, your relationship with Adonai is compri- compromised because now we see through a veil. So all of us know cognitively, or we know because we've read the Bible, that Adonai is our husband, that Yeshua is the bridegroom. We kind of get that, but we, if we were to compare them to a human spouse, it doesn't compare, because that one is tangible, this one is physical. That one is based entirely as a byproduct of hope, of faith, and of hope. Your husband, your Maker, is obscured to you. You accept him by faith those of you with human husbands, and human spouses, human wives, the tendency is to accept that it's the best it can be. In other words, your connection to this flawed individual is the best that it's going to be. But rather understand this, that Adonai is only reflected in the image of your husband, but Adonai is a flawless husband. Adonai is only reflected in the image of your wife. His his image is reflected in your wife. But Adonai is flawless in that relationship with you. Do you see that? If by faith and hope we rise above the flaws that are in the, 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 the spouses, if by faith and hope we rise above that, then we step into the fullness of what Adam and I created marriage to be. We step into the fullness of that to the degree that we can leave behind the flaws. As long as the flaws remain the center of our attention, the object of our focus, we can't enter into the fullness of what God created marriage to be. And, and bearing in mind that this thing that we call marriage today is probably a poor imitation of what Adam and, he, Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall. That was probably a kind of marriage we can only speculate about. The marriages we have now are complicated by the curse, complicated by the fall, complicated by our motivations. So the compromise of this is overcome by rising above the flaws that we naturally see in the other person the compromise of singleness if you are a single person in this relationship with a flawless husband your compromise is to rise above the fact that you can't see him or touch him your husband is your maker but you accept him only by faith you can't see him do you see that, that so it is a compromise it is a a faulty sort of connection to adonai it is a, an incomplete connection to adonai All right. The compromise in both of these is a challenge to our faith. The challenge to our faith as a single person is to overcome the fact that we accept him, we see him by faith, that he's not tangible. The challenge to our faith, for those of us who are married to human spouses, is to overcome the flaws in order to rise above step into the fullness that marriage is. And I would submit to you that in that dynamic, in those two comparisons, that the single person has something to offer those of us who are married to human spouses because of that exclusivity. It's easy to find complaints in marriage. I said this the first week we were talking that Men, if if you want to improve your marriages, the first thing you do is throw away the tape. We all have an endless loop tape running in our brain of our complaints, right, of our complaints against our spouses. The first thing you have to do is you have to throw away that tape and burn it and grind up the ashes and spread it on the sea and, and run away from that and never, ever, ever take up that again. Yes, complaints come. Overcome them. Don't let them repeat themselves in your brain. That will destroy your marriage these complaints sit there and distract us from what Adonai would offer to us as as an opportunity to step into the fullness of marriage. So uh, the husband who has a complaint tape on loop in his head of all the things wrong that his wife does, then he doesn't step into the fullness that God has for him in that marriage. Likewise, the single person, what complaint do they have? Their spouse, their their husband, is flawless, right? Their husband has no complaint against him, right? Well, actually, that's not true. All of us have complaints against God, right? You haven't done this, you haven't done that, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. Actually, when you step back a moment, it's the same line. We have a complaint against God, most of us, a complaint tape against God, running on endless loop in our head. And for the single person who doesn't want to be single, the most common complaint is, God, I'm still single. You have to rise above that complaint, put that complaint aside, and step into the fullness of what God has for you. Yes, we have a number of people in our community, in our congregation, and our, our people we know, that we are actively praying for them to find spouses. It's not unusual. You get Somebody says, hey, can, can I talk to you? And... I just don't want to be single anymore, and I've done this long enough. and That's not unusual, and we have a number of people, and we actively pray because it's not good for people to be alone. It's just not. So we're actively praying about that. But in the meantime, if you surrender to the complaint loop running in your head, then you're going to miss out on the relationship that Adonai has for you now. Okay. Let's try to move on. So, I have been speaking to men primarily over the last two weeks with this idea of the man as the servant king who leads by taking responsibility, becoming a sacrifice, by being a giver which is how Adonai created us instead of whining about what you're not receiving you should be active in giving and sacrificing these are, in short, some of the points that we've made to the men in the, in the, in the last two weeks Now. What I want to do is really go out on a limb here and, um, and, and speak to you ladies, primarily, uh, which, which carries with it all the risk. <laughs> uh, but that's OK. I, we'll, we'll probably be all right. We'll find out in a couple hours here. Um, I want you to really uh, answer this question. What would be the primary virtue of a woman towards her husband? What is the the primary virtue that a woman should have towards a husband? Would it be loyalty? Would it be faithfulness? Would it be forgiveness or mercy? Yeah, my vote's there. Yes to all these things. That's the nature of virtues. They're all good. But, but, But let me suggest to you that I believe the primary virtue that a woman should demonstrate to her husband, to her marriage, is kindness. Under kindness, you have compassion, patience, and these are part of it. But for kindness, I'm also talking about warmth, considerations, graciousness, understanding. Understanding the weaknesses and strengths of the people around you, working to increase their strengths and make up for their weaknesses. These are all expressions of kindness. If you had a coworker, and after some time working together you come to understand that they are very good at interacting with clients, workers, people, they're just not so good at paperwork. Kindness would be allowing them to do what they do best and quietly doing all the paperwork in the background for them. Kindness is making up for other people's shortcomings, whether it's requested or not. Kindness is seeing where the needs are and then meeting those needs. Kindness is an expression of loyalty, even when it is undeserved. Now, when I said, what is the primary virtue that a woman should have towards her husband, um, in in the modern culture and and certainly in in evangelical Christianity, the answer that you often hear is, is some sort of variation on submission or obedience. Our cultural understanding of the word submission and obedience are affected by what we see as a power principle that's always at play in the word obedience and submission. There's a person of power who demands or requires submission, or you are somehow culturally forced to submit or obey to a person of authority, or a person of authority is arbitrarily created and then that person now has exercise and control. These are some of the paradigms that we think of when we think of obedience and submission. But see, you can submit out of fear in some sort of dynamic of force or power, or you can submit out of love or out of kindness. Interesting, our recent Torah portions have addressed this issue of kindness. When we read of Abram, who was later called Abraham, when he takes his wife Sarai, who becomes Sarah, we read of this woman, this young woman who was barren. In the context, it could be read that she was barren, meaning after she got married, or it could be read in the context of the speaking about Abram taking her as a wife, that she was barren somehow before they were married. The kindness of Abraham was demonstrated When a man takes on a barren wife, that's an extreme act of kindness. Further, her father had likely just died, her brother went into the house of Abraham's brother. Who would take in the barren orphan woman? Abraham did, not as a servant or or as an obligation, but as a wife. In other words, he didn't take her into his household and say, well, I'll provide a household for you, I'll make sure you're okay. He took her in as a wife. This is kindness. Later, when Abraham was recovering from the circumcision, Adonai came with two visitors to Abraham. And it says that Abraham rushed to prepare a meal for them, to care for them, to bring water, to wait on them. This is Abraham's kindness, which is then contrasted by the hostility of of Sodom towards the two visitors. Lot tries to imitate the hospitality of Abraham to these visitors, he takes in the visitors, and for this the people of Sodom come to assault them and come against Lot, who had been among them for some time. This is an example of the opposite of kindness. The reason I want to give an example, and I'll go back to the roots of kindness as it's laid out in, in, in the story of Abraham, is because I want you to see what's happening with Rebekah, with whom, again, we see kindness. Genesis 24, do you have Genesis 24, Jason? Genesis 24, verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who managed everything that belonged to him, now put your hand under my thigh so that I may, take you and, uh, may make you take an oath by Adonai, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am dwelling. On the contrary, to my land, to my relatives, you must go and get a wife from my son Isaac. The servant says, what if the woman won't return w- with me? Shall I take your son back there? And Abraham says, see to it that you don't return my son there. Uh, Verse 8, if the woman is not willing to follow after you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Nevertheless, you must not return my son there. If the woman is not willing to return with the servant, then the exercise is off. Presumably, then, Abraham and Sarah's family would not be providing the bride for Isaac. And presumably, then, Isaac would find a wife among the the Canaanites. So the servant travels to the city of Nahor, uh, Genesis Gen, uh, chapter 24, verse 12. And he prays before Adonai, Adonai the God of, my Abraham, of, of Abraham my master, he says, please make something happen before me today and show loyalty to Abraham my master. Uh, that word loyalty can also be uh, translated kindness, chassid. Um, Look, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are going out to draw water, verse 14. Now, let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please tip your jar so that I may drink, and she will say, drink, I'll also water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. So by this, I'll know that you have shown graciousness to my master. Do you see the test of kindness here? That will confirm the kindness of Adonai to Abraham. Remember, this is after the death of Sarah. At the death of Sarah, Abraham was finally able to purchase land. He was able to purchase land in, in the land of Canaan. Now it remains that he has to find a bride for Isaac. And this is to accomplish the two steps of this prophecy, this promise that Adonai had given to Abraham, both land and descendants. So he has to find a bride for Isaac. Genesis chapter 24, verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, that is the servant, there was Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milchah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, going out with a jar on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very good looking, a girl of marriageable age. and She was a virgin. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me sip a little water from your jar. So now we have this test, right? This is the test. It's been set up. Let's see how she responds. She says, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowers her jar, Give him a drink. Where did this phrase, drink, my lord, come from? It would have been an honorific, certainly. It probably would have been appropriate to the cultural time of that day. But the the, the Torah gives us words for very specific reasons, calling into attention her respect and her automatic uh, connection with his authority. She says, Drink, my lord. She recognized him as a man of some authority or purpose. Verse 19, When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have finished drinking. Do you see the kindness of Rebecca here? Do you see the echo of Abraham's kindness to the travelers? When the travelers came, when Adonai and the two visitors came to visit Abraham, it says he ran. In this passage, it says she ran. She ran. Verse 20, she quickly poured out her jug in the trough and ran back to the well to draw more water and drew water for all his camels. So later, after negotiations are completed with the family, the servant is going to take this Rebekah back to Isaac to be a bride. And the family begins to waffle on the deal. Remember, this is Laban, and Laban is notorious for changing deals. And so they begin to waffle on the deal. He rose in the morning, the servant says, send me off to my master, verse 54 or 55. But her brother with her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days or ten. Afterwards she may go. He said, don't delay me, Adonai has made my way successful, send me off. Verse 57, they said, let's call the young woman and ask her opinion. They called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. She agreed to go even though her family was giving her an opportunity for second thoughts agreed to go with them even though her family was giving her an out so she travels with the servant of abraham uh, verse 61 then rebecca got up with her maids they mounted the camels and followed after the man verse 62 isaac had come from visiting be'er lohi Roy was living in the land of negev isaac went out to meditate strolling in the field at dusk then he lifted up his eyes and saw behold camels were coming rebecca also lifted up her eyes and saw isaac this is the ultimate romantic moment. He lifts up his eyes, he sees the camels, she looks up, lifts up her eyes, she sees him, and it says, then she fell off her camel. <laughs> That's what it says. She fell off her camel. Apparently, moved. <laughs> she said to the servant, who is that man there who was walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, he is my master. So she took the veil and covered herself. When it says that she covered herself, it means she is choosing to obscure from her vision all others. She has drawn a moment now, and she's not going to look at anybody else. She's not going to see anybody else clearly until she sees the face of her bridegroom. The next face that she sees clearly, unobscured, will be when her veil is lifted and she sees her bridegroom. Verse 66, the servant recounted to Isaac all the things he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. In this line, so Isaac was comforted after the loss of his mother. One little line there that gives us a hint of some of the psychology and some of the dynamics that were going on in this family. Apparently, Isaac was close to his mother to the point that he needed comforting after her loss. It is a kindness to Isaac that he found a bride. The kindness of Abraham in securing a bride, the kindness of the servant in doing the work and being true to the mission, the kindness of Adonai reserving one so beautiful and so virtuous. But ultimately and especially the kindness of Rebecca to become his bride in agreeing to become the wife of this man Isaac who was an exile in Canaan who didn't own any land this sojourner this is rebecca's kindness that she came to be his bride But wait, you're probably saying, didn't Rebekah betray Isaac when Jacob stole the blessing? Don't we have that story in the back of our minds? Yes, you can read it this way. But you can also read it as Rebekah trying to save Isaac from making a terrible mistake. The prophecy, the greater shall serve the younger, then Esau despised his birthright. The blessing of Abraham should not have gone to Esau. And so that was what Rebecca was intervening to make sure it didn't happen. So I don't know that Rebecca has entirely lost her reputation in the, in, the, in the text. This statement that Rebecca makes to the servant when she calls him Lord r- reminds me of the time that we have this reference that Sarah, Calls Abraham Lord. Uh, For this way, the holy women uh, who put their hope in God used to beautify themselves long ago, being submitted to their own husbands, uh, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I think this is 1 Peter 3. You have become her daughters by doing what is good. In other words, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Do you see the kindness in that submission? There was kindness in this expression of calling the servant Lord. There was kindness in the expression of calling Abraham Lord. There's another expression of kindness in the Bible that we read, that of Ruth, first with Naomi, and second with Boaz. In the book of Ruth, we have this story. Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons traveled to Moab because there was a famine in the land. Naomi's two sons each take wives. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies, and then the two sons die. Naomi is going to return to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem. And she urges the two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab to find new husbands. And both daughters-in-law initially refuse. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 8. So Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to your mother's house. May Adonai show you the same kindness, that you have shown to the dead and to me. Verse nine, May Adonai grant you th- that you find rest, each of you in the house of your own husband. She kissed them and wept loudly. Verse 10, they responded, no, they said to her, we'll return with you to your people. Naomi refuses them, urges them to stay and go back to their father's houses. The one daughter-in-law agrees, but Ruth does not. Verse 16, Ruth says this, Ruth replied, do not plead with me to abandon you to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God my God. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Adonai deal with me in worse, if anything but death comes between me and you. Now, what does that sound like to you? That sounds to me like a marriage vow. That sounds like something you would say, something you would write into a marriage ceremony. It's very beautiful, very romantic, very powerful. And this is the kindness of Ruth Naomi. Ruth could have gone back to her father's house. She could have taken another husband. She could have chosen another path. But let's understand this. She's choosing poverty. She's choosing poverty because her mother-in-law is not going to have anything. She's not going to have any resources. She's going to be poor. And Ruth is also choosing poverty as a foreigner, as an exile, as an immigrant. This is the measure of Ruth's kindness to Naomi, that she was willing to be loyal to her mother-in-law by her deceased husband. And so when they arrive back in Beit Lachem, Ruth goes to work in the fields. We don't see that Naomi goes to work, but we do see that Ruth goes to work. So Ruth goes to work in the fields. The Torah has three laws that are applied here. The first law is when you're harvesting your field and some of your seeds spill or some of the strands of grain come out of the bundle. If there's spillage, if there's something that falls, you're not allowed to pick it up. The second law, you're not allowed to go back over the field to make sure nothing was missed. You're doing your harvesting and you're cutting and you're done and you look back and there's a bunch of stalks you missed. You're not allowed to go back and cut those. And the third law, is you're not allowed to, to harvest the corners, corners and the fringes. Now it is these three things that were reserved for the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. So you don't go back and you pick up the spillage, but the widow and the foreigner and the orphaners allowed, or the, the orphan is allowed to go and pick up the spillage. This is what Ruth is doing when she goes in the field. This is what she has adopted. She has adopted this life of poverty. And when she does that, Boaz makes inquiries about her and learns who she is, and and Boaz speaks to her. Ruth chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz replied and said to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother, the land of your birth, came to a people you did not know before. It says it was fully reported to him. In other words, that's a story. Have you heard the one about Ruth? Have you heard about the lady who, who's staying with Naomi? Gave up everything to come back with Naomi. It would have been a story in the community. Verse 12, may Adonai repay you for what you have done. May you be fully rewarded by Adonai, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz says to her this blessing, may you be blessed. May Adonai cover you with his wings. Later, at the prompting of Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth goes to meet with Boaz at night. Verse 3 of chapter 3, Naomi, her mother-in-law, says to her, My daughter, should I not be seeking a resting place for you that that it may go well with you? Now Boaz, with whose female workers you have been, is is he not our relative? Look, he will be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And so we have this little plan, this little matchmaking that Naomi does. Bathe and perfume yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Let it be that when he lies down, and you know the place where he lies down, go uncover his feet and lie there, and he will tell you what to do. Ruth answered her, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had said. So Boaz is, 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 is celebrating the harvest. It's been a good harvest. They drink, they're merry, they eat. He lays down to sleep on the side of the grain pile and she comes quietly verse 7 she came to the grain pile quietly uncovered his feet and lay down verse 8 in the middle of the night this man was startled pulled back and to his surprise a woman was lying at his feet who are you he asked she says I am Ruth your handmaid spread the corner of your garment over your handmaid for you are my Goel my redeemer verse 10 may you be blessed by Adonai my daughter you've made the latter act of loyalty greater than the first again that word loyalty uh, kindness greater than the first, by not running after the young men, whether rich or poor. Remember the blessing that Boaz gave to Ruth when he said, May Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then what does she say to Boaz as she lays down at his feet? And he wakes up. She says, spread the corner of your garment over your handmaid. Spread your garment over me. You see that connection? He's telling her, Adonai will spread his garment over you. And she says, you spread your garment over me. And that is expressed as a kindness. Why is it a kindness? Because she could have had somebody from Moab. Because she could have had somebody younger. Because she could have had, let's be honest, somebody more strong and fit and young. Boaz is is an elderly man at this point, almost likely. This word in Hebrew, chesed, is kindness. And it, it carries so much emotional weight in the text. Notice that Ruth placed herself in a position of vulnerability. She made herself vulnerable. She presented herself and asked him, to take her under his wing, literally. Remember what Boaz said, may Adonai place you under his wings. There's this phrase, the Sukhat Shalom, the shelter of peace. It refers first to the people of Israel who were walking through the desert under the cloud, the cloud of Adonai. They were covered in the cloud of glory, the Sukhat HaKavod. But remember the husband who is the giver. The husband who is the giver, giving peace into the home. This is the Sukkot Shalom that the husband man provides to the wife. It is the shelter of peace. That's what she's asking for when Ruth visits Boaz. You men, that's what your wife is asking for. Is for you to place your shelter of peace over her. And this is all fine, but why did I begin with saying the primary virtue of a woman is kindness in marriage? Because it is a kindness of a woman to place herself in that vulnerability asking the husband man to be her shelter of peace. This is the ultimate expression of kindness, to accept this flawed Example of a man to call him husband to call him Lord to submit to him as unto Yeshua as unto Adonai we have spoken to men and we've been very specific I have reprimanded I have rebuked I've told you men what you need to do Now, speaking to the ladies, what do you do when the husband man takes his first awkward steps in accepting responsibility? What do you do when he takes his first clumsy steps at stepping up to be a man, to be a sacrifice and a giver? Let's use a really simple example. The wife says to the husband, I want you to open doors for me. And The husband says, okay, I'll open the doors for you. And so they walk up to the first door, and he's never done this before, and he doesn't know what to do, and what side of the door does he stand on, and does he reach over here, and does he reach over there, and there's this moment of confusion. Hopefully it's kind of silly and kind of fun. But that's what I'm talking about. It's that awkwardness. There's a phenomenon in the body of Messiah in modern times where many women are on a much more active path in their spirituality than their husbands. It's just a phenomenon. Women are very active in the kingdom of God. Women are more active than men and in, uh, in, in congregation life in, in many cases. This is just a phenomenon, a reality. Ladies, if your husband stans, steps up and says, "Well," I want to take responsibility I want to do this I want us to do that are you prepared to respond See, it is a kindness for you ladies to accept him as a flawed imitation of Yeshua it is a kindness of you ladies to submit to him when he is doing his best efforts or let's be honest it's a kindness for you to submit to him when he's barely making the grade but he's trying right? Because we're flawed. The husband men are flawed, just speaking. When he begins to take the journey, when he begins to become a man, when he begins to take responsibility, maybe he gets it right once, maybe the first time, how do you respond to him? Do you make him get it right 20 percent of the time? Or 50 or 80 percent of the time? Or do you respond in kindness as unto Adonai? This is the fundamental kindness to place yourself under the wings of your husband. This is the first step. This is the marriage step to place yourself under his wings. But if you follow that first step of kindness, that first act of kindness, if you follow that up, with aloofness, with distance, with becoming unavailable? Do you withhold the kindness of your affections? Do you withhold kindness of intimacy? Do you refuse his feeble attempts? Do you reject his sacrifice? Do you despise his responsibility? Do you see that to follow that first kindness with an act of hostility just blows everything up? Husbands choose love. We are exhorted to choose love, to take delight in our wives. And we've talked about this. Ladies, I'm asking you to choose kindness. Wives are called to respect their husbands. How do you show respect? I submit to you with kindness. In your relationship with your husbands, choose kindness as a way of encouraging him to do things that he should already be doing. But you husbands, do you break the heart of your wife? Do not take her kindness and squash it under your feet. Choose love and genuine adoration. She is the queen of your home. Make sure she knows it. Make sure you treasure her and honor her. Make sure that she has a place to plant kindness. The peace in the home is your responsibility, men. Make sure that you've provided a fertile garden of peace where she can sow kindness into that place. Then you will see that her heart is truly for you and then you will see that you have become her husband. A lot of times our marriages over time get clumsy and broken, and messed up, and they become like dysfunctional roommates. And we talked about this the first week, the idea of of the the, the tangled ball of yarn, and you pull on a string and nothing happens. And I think what I would suggest to you, if that's your situation, I think what I would suggest to you is that you you withdraw from the knot. (laughs) withdraw from the tangle, take a step back, and revisit what your place is there. Are you the husband? Then become the giver. Become the sacrifice. Take responsibility. Are you the wife? You can always bless with kindness. There are some cases with, uh, where, where relationships are broken with abuse. And as I've said in the past couple weeks, if, if that's your situation, then you're going to need uh, some, some very professional help but for the rest of us who are living in just modern life with our relationships, the product of years, of being together, the products of our childhood, the products of our sin, all these things. Again, getting to know your spouse, getting to know yourself, but getting to know this thing called marriage. If you can take a step back and re-energize and, and remotivate yourself to do these, th- these simple things, I think you'll find a lot of freedom and a lot of victory there. And I think you'll find that there's romance there in a very special way. Because that's what we're all looking for anyway, is sweetness and kindness. Remember, he who loves his wife loves himself. So it's in your best interest, men to get this right. Let's get it right so we can move on. And for you ladies, remember kindness. And we'll try to be the better for it. Speaking for the men.